From the Amazon to the Himalayas, God is accomplishing his mission. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast, stories and conversations with the global church and for the global church about the mission of God in the world. And now here is your host, Paul Aiken. Welcome to Amazon to the Himalayas podcast. I'm your host, Paul Aiken. And in this episode, we're going to be having a conversation with Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott is the president of Operation Mobilization. He is a native of Northern Ireland, and he studied at Belfast Bible College and has experience serving in both pastoral and missionary roles. He is the author of the book Scattered, which we'll hear more about in a moment. Andrew and his family currently live in Georgia, and I'm really excited for you to hear from Andrew today. Andrew, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Paul. It's uh, so good to be able to connect again with you after, uh, well, after a while and also from our first meeting many years ago. Lovely to see you in your new role. That's right. Praise the Lord. Andrew, maybe start by just telling us a little bit about you and your family. Yeah, well, uh, as you mentioned, I grew up in Northern Ireland. So did my wife, Sharon. She's a red-haired, green-eyed Irish lass. Uh, Although it's the stereotype, there's not that many of them. So I've got a special one. Uh, We started dating when we were 15, uh, so most of our life uh, we've been together, and uh, we have two children, Anna, who's 25, she's married to David, and my son Daniel, who's 22, and uh, he's uh, still living with us, he's going to university, working part-time, and yeah, great, Uh, we're in a good place as a family, enjoying life. Thanks for sharing that. Andrew, one of the things I love hearing from people is their salvation testimony. I love hearing how God has saved people from different places around the world. So maybe just briefly share with us your salvation testimony. Yeah, well, Paul, like you, I had the best of examples in my parents uh, being followers of Jesus, living it out brightly, living it out well in the home, in the neighborhood, in the in the broader community, in the workplace. And so there's never a time in my life where I can remember, uh, where, where I never knew about Jesus, where I wasn't being taught about Jesus. My parents ran a good news club in our house every Tuesday night. We were in church from, I don't know what time in the morning on a Sunday to evening, because my dad was the elder and we ran home for lunch. We ran home for dinner in the evening. And, and uh, so uh, we went to evening meetings all the time. Uh, every night, my father or my mother would do three things with us. They would read the scriptures, they would read a chapter out of a mission biography, and we would pray together. That was my upbringing, right? So I had the living example, and I had the Word of God being read in front of me. But uh, it was my brother, actually, an older brother, my only brother, who asked me one night, Andrew, have you made a decision personally to follow Jesus? You see what mom and dad are doing, you see what I'm doing, but have you made a personal decision? And so at the grand, ripe old age of five and a half years old, I made that personal decision myself. And so it's been my life. You know, I never had a period where I wandered off. I don't have that type of story in my life. But certainly there's been times where I've, certainly through my teenage years, where I was more committed and less committed. But Five and a half years old was when I made that personal decision. I've sought to to follow Jesus since then. Amen. Praise the Lord. I love hearing stories of salvation testimonies early as as a child. It was kind of same mm. thing was true for me. And so I praise right. the Lord for for yeah. His work and for faithful parents who yeah. share the gospel with their kids. I think that's awesome. You mentioned that you're from Northern Ireland, so I know you you live now in North America, but you're originally from Northern Ireland. Can you share a little bit with our audience about? the people, the culture, and the state of the church Mm. in Northern Ireland today? 
Yeah, well, first, it's of course, it's a beautiful part of the world. I've been to, I think, 85 countries now. And I, every time I go back, it's I just I'm still amazed by the natural beauty of the island of Ireland. I love going back home. And I will say right up front also that, of course, I've been out of the country for so long now, Paul. So I'm a little out of touch with the church and, and what's going on. But I do keep in contact, obviously. But, but I would say three things that would sort of help us understand the context and, and the shape of the churches. Number one is that what we call the Troubles, that's a period of time where there's been a lot of terrorist activity. There was the fight for freedom by a group of people from the control of the British and a lot of terrorist activity around that. We call that period or the, the, the Troubles. <laughs> uh, the Troubles have shaped everyone and certainly life and culture and the church in Northern Ireland. But in the midst of that, the evangelical churches very, I would say, significant in number, at least in attendance. Over 25% of the population in Northern Ireland are evangelical Christians, right? As opposed to the Republic of Ireland, where it's historically the majority have been Roman Catholic and a lot of unchurched in recent days, unchurched people leaving the Roman Catholic Church. So a large segment of the population go to church. But I would say the second thing I'd say, so it's a large church, but the second thing I'd say is that their silence during the Troubles I would say, created, uh, I would say, as a bit of an indictment on the church, that they remain silent in the midst of a lot of hurt and pain. And I think that that it, through that lost some relevance in society for an emerging generation who didn't see the church take leadership, speaking out against uh, some of the injustices. And then I would say, thirdly, another challenge would be is that we, like many churches and even mission agencies, we constantly mixed up the unchanging message of the gospel with unchanging methodology and relevance to the culture around us. And so we got stuck in a certain way of doing church. And so our emerging generation struggled with that, left it. And thankfully, there's some fresh expressions of the church. Uh, a number of churches are starting to see this and changing. Uh, the one I was part of is one of them. I, I just love to see that when I go back, they're full of young couples young and, and young people. So trouble shaped us, a uh, bit of an indictment. We kept silent in the middle of, of injustices. And thirdly, we, we got a little bit stuck in our methodologies. Maybe a fourth thing I would say that's that's a wonderful picture of the church as well is that we, for a period of time, period of history, we were sending out more missionaries per capita than any other country in the world. There was always a strong missions emphasis in the church. I would say that's maybe waned a little bit, but it's still there, and I appreciate that for sure. That's helpful. I appreciate you providing, that. and I want to I want to dive into some of that, at least the unchanging message of the gospel, but then methods and strategies related to that. We can we can touch on some more of that later. Yeah. I yeah. want to shift now to. Uh, what I mentioned in the introduction is you're the president of Operation Mobilization, also known as OM or OM USA. Can you tell us a little bit about OM? It's it's history, mm -hmm. it's founding, uh, what makes it unique, key areas of focus and work around the world. Yeah, well, feel free to, to jump in and, and dive a little deeper in some of the parts. But over 60 years ago now, a young teenager, <laughs> a young teenager from Wyckoff, New Jersey, called George Verber, he was a bit of a unique character. But George came to faith through Billy Graham, through going to a Billy Graham crusade, and uh, I believe it was Madison Square. And through that, George became brokenhearted by the reality that there were over 1.5 billion people in the world back then who had never heard the gospel even once. 
And the guiding conviction then of his life became everyone should hear the gospel at least once. And so he invited, he was at Moody at the time, invited some of us uh, when, when he, he moved into this as a teenager, he invited some of his friends to uh, go with him to Mexico, which of course, back then nobody was going. It was an unreached country. And they would give out literature and simple presentations of the gospel over Christmas. A couple of summers later, he decided to move to Europe and did the same in France. And over 2,000, by the second summer, over 2,000 young people joined him uh, to give out literature across Europe. And, and they give out 25 million pieces of literature into the homes of France in those days. Just incredible stuff. And, and it just shaped everything we did, smuggling literature into the communist world, buying ships to take more literature and more young evangelists everywhere they go. But George was also had this other conviction, Paul, that he believed that everyone, every follower of Jesus, had a responsibility in bringing the gospel to the nations. It would look different with everybody, but everyone had that responsibility. It was in everybody's job description, if you like, to be in to be both concerned and involved with getting the gospel to the nations. That was his guy. And so he, he, uh, I would say, changed the face of mission when many didn't see themselves as a, what we would call a missionary. He invited them to come for a summer and it changed the trajectory of their life. Well, today I would say we, over the years, the 60 plus years, we've evolved some. And, and I think in a good way, we've never lost sight of the centrality of the gospel, the importance of the gospel, but we've understood that we actually, it's not just about someone hearing the gospel. We actually have a deep desire for the gospel to take root in a community, to take care of not just the spiritual needs, but the physical needs of a community, because we believe the gospel is that powerful. So the way we describe what we do today is we want to see vibrant communities of Jesus followers among the least reached, because we believe the best expression of the gospel gospel is a group of Jesus followers living it out and speaking it out in a community, right? So we want to see a vibrant community uh, of Jesus followers within reach of everyone, that everyone on the planet can see what the gospel looks like, lived out, the difference it makes in the community, and, and of course, an explanation of the gospel that's culturally relevant to them, that makes sense to them. So we have, we work in over, I think it's over 120 countries now with people for working with us from more than that countries. Uh, are, we believe uh, that um, the, the three sort of pillars that we talk about, we want to so broadly, we want to get the gospel out broadly through technology. Uh, but we also believe that it's necessary to have people on the ground to then uh, disciple people. So we want to go boldly and, and use to see new workforce, new pathways, and uh, new ways for people to join us. And then we want to see the gospel transform totally. So those are the three things, going boldly, transforming totally, and sowing broadly. I appreciate you breaking it all down like that and sharing it in kind of a, a brief summary way that's able for us to understand and to digest. It's really helpful. As you think about uh, the work of OM around the world, obviously mm. you just mentioned that there's work going on in, in over 120 different countries. There are people praying for the work in all kinds of different places. When you think back maybe on the last two to three years, what are some of the most encouraging stories, things that are happening? What, what is the Lord doing through the work of OM around the world? Well, let me tell you about Moses, uh, Paul. He's not Moses in Exodus, but Moses uh, in on the shores of Lake Tanganyika. Moses is a Zambian, grew up in Zambia, came to know Jesus in Zambia. And he came to our training base in Zambia to uh, get equipped to take the gospel to unreached people groups. And so he decided then to go 
to one of the villages on, on, on the lake, the shores of Lake Tanganyika, which is a big strip of water, which you're probably very familiar with. <laughs> uh, it's the second largest body of water in the world simply because it's so deep in the, the Rift Valley. Uh, but around the shores of Lake Tanganyika, which, border the, which borders the country of countries of Burundi, uh, Democratic Republic of Congo, Tanzania, and Zambia, are many villages that have never been reached with the gospel, certainly not in recent days. Um, and so he went and he moved into a village and he really seeking to see a vibrant community of Jesus, fo- Jesus followers formed there. And so he went in there with his family. The way he did life was different for the villagers because he clearly loved, showed uh, affection to his wife in a culturally appropriate way, obviously. He educated his kids and he invited other kids to come and get education. He, he built a little school, helped to build a little school so the kids could get educated. He, uh, we were able to give him uh, some money to buy a fishing boat because that was the industry. So he, he went out on the lake to fish, invited some men to come with him. And in the evenings when I was always fishing during the night, he would bring out the word of God and say, guys, can I talk about the one who causes me to live the life the way I do? Because they were seeing it different and they wanted to see, uh, give, get a reason for the hope that lay within, within Moses. And so one of the first people that came to faith was Andrew, who is was the head man of the village. And he couldn't argue with Moses's life because he saw hope in Moses's life that he didn't have. And he saw a way of life that was attractive to him, the, the family interaction, the kids' interaction, the way he did his work. And so Andrew came to faith, and very soon after that, and quite a few more came to faith, and a little fellowship was started. Now, something else was going on in that village that still happens in different parts of the lake, a child sacrifice. And these villages believed that in a certain time of the month, when the moon, well, the moon would go uh, was at a certain position and the fish went to a different part of the lake, but the people believed that it was the gods of the lake being angry with them and they couldn't catch fish. So they would come home and they would sacrifice their youngest child to the gods of the lake. And Paul, I only found this out recently. I I thought it was one for the whole village. It was one per family. And so this was happening on a scale that's unimaginable. And so Moses, through saying to the guys, understanding what was really going on, uh, would come in with a full boat of fish. Uh, and men were in tears because they'd just sacrificed their child the day before and had no fish. And Moses was able to help them to understand. And so in that village, child sacrifices stopped. Kids are now being educated. Families are together. Uh, the head man is opening all of his village meetings with prayer and he's leading out. Uh, now, that village of their own volition said, hey, we have found hope in Jesus. We need to go to the villages that don't have hope. And they have now gone up. None of those are OMers, by the way, Paul. Most of them don't even know we exist. But this is what we're, we're seeing. We, we want to see these vibrant communities of Jesus followers. We want to see them locally led. We want to see them self-sustaining. We want to see them multiplying and transforming their community. And if you, if you think of that, then Moses is sort of the, the epitome of that. He has since left that village. Andrew, that local leader, is now the leader of the work and the work is expanding under his leadership. Uh, And so that both epitomizes or illustrates what we want to see happen, uh, but deeply, deeply encourages me because uh, I can see that expanding uh, dramatically because it's, it's very inexpensive, by the way, and there's a lot of these men and women who are willing to go do that. Praise the Lord. I love, I love hearing stories like that, that, that in many ways they sounds like they, like it came straight out of the New Testament. Yeah. Uh, it just, yeah. the Lord, the Lord is still working. He's still doing amazing things. And so thanks for sharing 
Maybe can I just say there, if there was a statement to encapsulate this, what I'm most encouraged, excited about is that there is a new workforce that's rising up. The day of mission being the West to the rest, we know that day's over, right? But God has raised up the church in the global South through a lot of effort from uh, workers that have gone all over the world. The church in the part of the world, Latin America, Sub-Saharan Africa, then right across into India, China, we know that it's growing rapidly. Uh, and uh, they have geographical and cultural proximity to the least reached. And so there's this new workforce that's ready to go. And we, I'm excited about that. I think there's another piece of that workforce is the what we often refer to the 99% of the body of Christ who have historically seen themselves as either excluded from the Great Commission or excused from the Great Commission. They, they, I, that, that's not me. That's not what I was created for. Well, I believe the millennial and uh, Z generations God has hardwired them to think that actually, I believe that within my job, I can live that out for the, the grand purposes of God, and I could go do that somewhere else in the world. And many of these Global South workforce people are needing to go in their job because they will never raise personal support. And I think we'll touch on this a little bit later in the uh, on the podcast, but, but I get excited about this new workforce that's exponentially larger. So I actually don't believe that the workers are few anymore. Uh, I think there's lots of workers, potential workers out there, if we are able to reposition ourselves and make way for them to come in. Well said. I've heard people say the the harvest is in the harvest or the workers are right. in the, har- there you in the go. harvest. I think, yeah. I think there's something to that. So I appreciate you yeah. mentioning that. Uh, you know, you just mentioned, this is maybe more of a, a, a quicker question for you, but you've mentioned that you work with with missionaries who are serving all over the world. And so, and I know some of the folks that are listening mm-hmm. to the podcast are people who are aspiring uh, maybe to one day be mm-hmm. and serve as missionaries. So I would just be curious, in your opinion, what ingredients, qualities, characteristics make a good and effective missionary? Yeah, Paul, <laughs> I, uh, you know, there could be a long list and there's no way I want to simplify it down into even, I'm going to give you one, but I, there's no way I'm saying it's only one, but I think there's one that I have noticed. And I would say this is true, not simply of someone who would go, uh, a Jesus follower who'd go from here and go to another country. I think this is true of Jesus followers in life or disciples in life, disciples who by the very definition of disciple is our disciple makers. And the word or the ingredient, whether it's an ingredient or a characteristic to me is intentional or intentionality. Uh, I have seen people uh, go in the current mission model who have lost their intentionality for lots of reasons. I've seen people go after a period of time. And maybe I'll, I'll share a story about Max very briefly. Max is from, he's from Russia. Max came to know Jesus in prison. I met him just about a year ago in a part of the world. I'll not mention the part of the world, but it is one of the most unreached parts of the world. And Max shared his story. He came to faith in prison uh, and he started to read the Gospels and the book of Acts. And he quickly understood that if I'm a follower of Jesus, part of my purpose is to live all of my life for that and to invite other people into it. And so he started doing it where he was, but then he kept reading and thinking, and, but there's parts of the world where people will have never heard this. Where are those? So he was intentional right away when he was awakened to this idea of how in my life can I be an example to others and share the gospel with others? He did that right away. He was intentional. And then he he got to the point where he was going, he was intentional to say, where in the world 
are there no people? Are there people who don't know Jesus or will never hear Jesus? And he found this part of the world that was in close proximity where he was. And he just said to his wife, hey, we're going. And off he went to this part of the world. And he got there and he realized that to stay here, I need some type of a, an identity and job here. And he went and got some training for that, came back and did that particular job in the country. And his wife started a little kindergarten. And they started to reach out to the people who were in the community where he was working, in the neighborhood where they were living and through this kindergarten and started to see people come to faith. And if there's one word I can describe, there's probably other words, but there's one word, it was intentional. He, he intentionally searched the scriptures to see who am I? Why do I exist? Then he lived it out. Then he intentionally asked the question, where are there people who didn't, who don't know Jesus? And he went and he lived there. Then he asked the question, how do I best do that? And he, he did it. And I just think that if we can have a degree of intentionality, whoever we are, wherever we are, as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I do believe that that, that, that is one of the ingredients that will lead us to the place where we will be interacting with the right people with the message of the gospel. Um, and so I'll leave that one word and keep it simple, intentionality. Don't lose your intentionality of who you are, why you exist, and how you live that out in the world. I love that intentionality. I think that's that's a really helpful and good word. Uh, a few I mentioned in the introduction that you mm. are the author of a book called Scatter. Uh, I'd love, and I think you, maybe you've already touched on a couple of the ideas there, but I'd love for you to tell us why you wrote that book and mm. really what that book is about. Yeah, thanks for mentioning that, Paul. It was really the Scatter was a result. I was a very reluctant author, by the way. I had my English teacher from high school in sort of in the back of my head somewhere laughing her head off at the idea that I would even write a book. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I, I it was part of a, my own personal journey, Paul, of, of just a bit of a crisis of belief. As I looked at the world and saw a growing number of unreached in the world, 3 billion people with 60,000 being added to that number every day, a declining number of people that were going to be part of the solution. Even the people that were going were going to places where the, the unreached weren't. Uh, the, the, the pitiful amount of money that we were sending to actually change that reality from, uh, from the church globally and certainly from North America. In fact, in the book, I, I quote that we spend more money on Halloween costumes for our pets in the U.S. than we do on changing the reality of the least reached. And, and I had this like, how can this be? As I reflected on it more, I realized that part of it was potentially our concern for the least reached was not what it should be. And our understanding maybe of how we should be doing it or could be doing it was not fully correct. And, and that we had we had almost, and, and uh, hear me out right here because I might ruffle a few feathers. I think we had got to a place where we had almost canonized our methodology our structures and our language around mission to where it was excluding the vast majority of the body of Christ. And I thought we will never change the reality of the least reached if we delegate the good news of the kingdom going to the nations to a handful of specially called highly trained people who will leave their jobs, raise support and go do it on behalf of the church. Guys, that's not a scriptural model. We have built our whole missions model and Paul, this probably would take hours for us to unpack, but we have built our whole mission model on Acts 13. Paul and Barnabas being set aside and have totally neglected Acts 8, where the whole body of Christ or the whole, all the Christians were scattered and everywhere they went, they preached the gospel. And in fact, if you look at the history of the New Testament church, more happened for the spread of the gospel through ordinary believers going into the un unreached world as ordinary believers 
just being Jesus followers. And so I, I came to say, how do we start to change the narrative of mission where every Jesus follower can see themselves in the big story of God? In fact, that their story makes no sense outside of the big story of God. And that moving the narrative from my life is mine, I get to paint the picture, I set my goals, my dreams, my ambitions, my plans, and then I invite God into that to bless it and to be part of it. And, and, and what I say is God doesn't want to be part of your life. God wants to be your life. And we were never made to invite God into our lives. We were made to be part of God's grand and glorious purposes for the earth. And so this is really what I tried to unpack in the book. Now, it's, you know, my, I, I, I would probably write it different if I had to write it again, Paul, but I, I, I'm still as deeply convinced that everyone, every person that ever was created was created in the image of God, that's their identity, to join God in his and what he wanted to do on the earth, that's their purpose. And he uniquely made them to do it in many different ways. And therefore, missions becomes less about a calling, as we have defined calling in today's world, than it is about this is what you were made for. So start living it out, start wrapping your life around it. So I don't know if that's too brief, but or, or if it's brief at all, but that's a bit of a synopsis of what I tried to point out and try to highlight engineers, doctors, nurses, hairdressers, architects, as characters in the story of God and central characters, not just periphery or augment to the mission endeavor. Yeah, I think that's really good and really helpful. You know, there's uh, there's an element of we've kind of left mission to the professional right? in a sense here, particularly in North America so, or, or even kind of in the West. I think about Europe and North America that missions is kind of a something that that the professional goes and does. And we don't really think about what does this mean for the average person in the pew? How can they be involved? And so I like the right. way in which you highlight, uh, yeah, every, everyday people, people who are coaches or who are nurses, right. or who are teachers, people who have skill sets that can be used all around the world. They're transferable skill sets that can be beneficial for the kingdom of God. So mm-hmm. I, I appreciate you, you mentioning those things and highlighting those things in the book. Um, I want to s- shift gears a little bit and talk kind of more big picture global mission and kind of get some of your thoughts on things that encourage you, things that concern you. So first question is, as you think about kind of broadly, generally, global mission today, what encourages you? Right. And and it's probably related back to what I've already said. So I'll, I'll just restate it and keep keep that brief. But I, I think that it's the, the new workforce that's emerging from the church in the global south. I mean, we have to be excited about that. Number one, not number one importance, but firstly, because this is the fruit of effort of years of mission effort around the world, right? We've seen the church in Latin America emerge as sub-Saharan Africa. It's exciting. And they're ready to step in, Paul. They're ready to step in uh, to that. And they're excited. Now, a lot of equipping and all of the rest, but but there's a the rise of the church in the global south but with geographical and cultural proximity to the least reached places. Exciting, encouraged about that. And I would say bringing it back home again. And I've, I don't know if you've seen this, as, uh, Paul, but I've, I see in the, the way that the, the uh, millennial generation and Gen Z are wired, there is this bent towards a more holistic view of life, that the sacred secular divide makes no sense to them, uh, that cause must be connected with my job. And, and in a sense, there's this, there's this leaning into the principles of the, the kingdom teachings of Jesus, right? Uh, that, they, that there's a sense of, you know, justice, 
being peacemakers, all of that's in there. Now, the challenge is, can we make sure they're including the king in the kingdom, right? <laughs> but, but it's there. And, and if, we can, if we can help them see that, that, yes, you were made for this, and you were made to represent the king through these things, and you're, you're, we were made to introduce the king to others, then I think, uh, I think that we can truly see in our generation, if if we, and I'll speak to this in a minute, if we are ready to build new pathways for them to go and even restructure our organizations to get out of the business of seeking to say that, that people have to join our organization in order to do that. And could we get to a place where we simply empower and equip people to do that? <laughs> Why do you need to join an organization to live your life for the kingdom of God? Now, there is a place to join organizations that are roles in organizations. But I think, and I'll, I'll leave that for the next the next question. But I think uh, if we can build pathways to let people go do this, and we can reshape our structures that we don't get in the way of them doing it, then I do believe that we can see one of the greatest, if not the greatest, movement of people towards the least reached in our generation. Either same culture workers moving village, near culture workers crossing a border, or far culture workers crossing uh, an ocean. Uh, we can see that happen in our generation, but it's going it's going to take great change. But I'm encouraged by the potential, Paul. That's good. I, I want to ask the flip side of the question, and I think maybe mm. you've already touched on some of that, but feel free to to dive more if you want to. Um, as you think about global mission today, what concerns you? I mean, obviously, there's uh, there, there's more than one concern, but I think I think for this, maybe I'll I'll, I'll touch on this at this point is just. Um, I think, I think that the in the North American context, Paul. I think the what concerns me is that we are we have allowed people to believe that their life is their own, uh, and I guess it goes back to discipleship. That our discipleship or lack thereof has not uh, included a robust understanding of you were made for the purpose of God, and we will. We will not see, whether it's here in North America or overseas, we will not see people wrapping their life around that until that changes. Uh, and so I, I guess my concern is for a, a level of Christianity or a level of commitment to following Jesus that is more reminiscent of um, or, or, or is more affected by the culture around us by, than by the scriptures. And, and so I, I think we... Uh, until we get a more robust view of that, I think we're we're uh, we're not going to see that happening. So I, I'm concerned that our messaging needs to change. Then it's not it's not what it needs to be to awaken that in people. Um, and again, there's there's many things that concern me, but that's one of the things maybe to just share at this time that I haven't touched on. How do how do we how do we see that change so that that Jesus followers are are neither feel excluded or excused from the Great Commission. Yeah, I think that's that's well stated, well put. Um, the individualism, in a sense, mm -hmm. that, we, right. that, we, that we trumpet, that we celebrate, uh, it, it can be a good thing, but there's 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 a negative aspect to it as right. well, where we see our life as our own, not as belonging to our right. redeemer, the one who's purchased us right. uh, by his blood. So that's that's good. What about uh, this is similar but a little bit different from your perspective? What would you say? And you can fill in the blank here. Mm -hmm. What would you say is the biggest challenge in global missions today? Yeah, you know, I, I've thought about this, Paul, and I realize that that I might have to pack my suitcases and, and get out of here quickly. Uh, 
from some of your listeners. But and, and I will say this as well, just as a as a disclaimer, there is no way that I am smart enough to know what what the biggest challenge. So you're asking my opinion, and I would put it in this way: is that this is one of the big challenges. There's lots of big challenges. Obviously, when you think of three billion people that that still need to see and hear the gospel lived out. But I think uh, from where I'm sitting, my vantage point, one of the things that we have to pay attention to if we're going to see this happen is, and let me say the whole sentence with it in it, the biggest challenge in global missions today is the mission agency. And what do I mean by that? I, I we, we were built, the mission agency was built, uh, number one, in the West, by the West, for the West, and primarily middle-class Westerners who had access to networks of wealth right? I don't have time to fully unpack that, but that's a reality. The majority of the church is no longer in the West. It's in the majority world, uh, what we call often call a global side, but the majority world where they don't necessarily have those ac- the same access to wealth. Uh, it was also built in an era where the world was very, very different, and we have not changed uh, enough to keep up with the fast-changing worlds. So our structures, our systems, our language, our processes are designed to send a very specific type of person to go do a very specific type of work. And I would say that the types of people and the how behind what we do has changed dramatically. And the way they have changed, what we have in our hands was not built to do it. And so we have to be willing as mission agencies to say, you know, nothing trumps the mission of God. Nothing gets in the way of seeing the gospel going to the least reached. Everything else, and I know your good friend David used to say this, everything else has to be on the table. We have to be willing to hold our methodologies, our structures, our processes, our systems, even our language, so loosely that 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 they probably will, some of them will have to disappear in the coming days in order to see the body of a Christ not only inspired and awakened to the global task of mission, but then uh, the pathways that we create for them to go and do what we're talking about and live intentionally and effectively in these parts of the world, whether they're a same or near or far culture worker. So, and, and Paul, I lead one of these, and I know the challenge of changing all of these things. Uh, and so I would say, as I think of my own world, the challenge ahead uh, to change a ship this size, to change the course of a ch- ship this size, stay on mission, but change uh, a lot of the other things around it to ensure that we accomplish what God has in front of us. That, I believe, is one of the biggest challenges today. Wow, that gives us, I think that gives us really all a lot to to think through, but I really appreciate, uh, yeah, the the willingness to say, Maybe we need to think through what does disruption look like and how mm-hmm. do we change some of our strategies, some of our methods, some of our focus and our aim and a lot of big questions there. So I, I appreciate right. you you throwing that out there and being willing to kind of wrestle through th- through those things. I think that's a very timely word for us. I want to move now kind of as we kind of uh, shut think closer to shutting things down. I'm going to ask you some more personal questions. And so this, this next question is a question mm-hmm. I ask everybody that mm-hmm. I interview, but I'd love to hear your thoughts. And the question is, Andrew, day after day, week after week, and month after month, what keeps you doing what you're doing, and why are you giving your life mm. to this work? 
Thank you, Paul. I, I ultimately, of course, like you, I am driven by a deep desire that everyone would get to hear and experience the good news of the kingdom uh, because we believe it can change everything, right? The gospel is that powerful. That is my deepest desire. And it breaks my heart that parts of the world where that's not happening. And we know where the good news of the kingdom has not gone. Not only are people not aware then of the relationship with God and the eternal uh, reality of that, but there's physical suffering that often goes hand in hand because the, 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 the light and salt of the gospel has not changed the injustices of that society. But I, So that, that is clearly there. But I, I see my role in that, Paul, in you know, what, what do I want to give my next 10, 15, 20 years, however long God allows me. My, my role in that ultimately is to be part of a movement, uh, one of the voices who will seek to reframe missions for a generation. Uh, to uh, awaken Jesus' followers through the Holy Spirit, of course, to their God-given identity, who God has made them to be as his children, to their God-given purpose, the, the big why of life. You were put on the planet to reflect the image of God in everything you do, re represent God in everything you do, invite people to do know God in everything you do. Uh, and and the role that God will roles that God has for you in that, how you live those things out, and how you can find out what those roles are, you know, through the abilities God has given you, the, the passions he's put in you, the spiritual gifts, et cetera, et cetera. I want to give my life to reframing missions so that, that the whole body of Christ can see themselves in the grand glorious narrative of God uh, and that no one feels excluded or no one feels excused. And that many, not just a few, that many will ask the question, what would it look like for me to go do this somewhere in the world where God has not known? And uh, so that's that's what gets me up in the morning. Uh, and uh, so awakening to that, people to that, and then building pathways for them to go do it. Thanks for sharing that. I think that's uh, certainly a worthy cause uh, of giving your time, your energy, and your life uh, to that work. So thank you for doing that. Last question. I'd love to hear your thoughts here. What is one thing you want everyone listening to this podcast to know or to do? Yeah, let, let me let me sum it up on a phrase that it's in that comes out of my book and that probably needs way more expounding on than I'm going to be able to give it. But it's this. Uh, what do I want you to know? I want you to know this, this that that you're not called to mission. You were made for mission. Or you are not called to the purpose of God. You were made for the purpose of God. And he has made you in his image to do it so that you could do it and he's uniquely shaped you to do it so find out how god has made you you know if you're a businessman you love business you're really good at business then that's probably what god wants you to be doing not for your own purpose but for his purpose which is to see his glory reflected through everything you do and for people to be drawn to him through your life if you're an engineer a nurse a hairdresser whatever it is how has god made you and then live it out for that grand and glorious purpose so don't sit around waiting for somehow God to burn the bush in your front yard or to make the donkey in your backyard speak. He may do that, get on the next plane if he does. But the reality is he's already revealed to us that he has made us for his purposes. What a wonderful thing to recognize. What a freeing thing to recognize and step into that through understanding how he's made you and embracing it and living it out fully. I hope you enjoyed hearing from Andrew today. Please pray for him, for his family, and for the work of OM around the world. To hear more conversations like this, please subscribe to this podcast and be sure to follow us on social media. Thanks again for listening to Amazon to the Himalayas. 
Thank you for joining us on Amazon to the Himalayas. This podcast is brought to you by the Billy Graham School at Southern Seminary. Please visit our website, www.sbts.edu bgs, where you can subscribe to the show and learn more. Also, if you have found these conversations helpful, please leave us a comment or a review and encourage your friends to subscribe to the podcast. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter for more. This is Amazon to the Himalayas podcast.